All right. Excellent. Excellent. Let's pray. Father in heaven, by grace, would you anoint the teaching of the scripture today to the blessing of your people, that your church would be enriched and made healthy and strong and would look to you and realize the glorious blessing of grace that they have experienced that is far beyond the imagination that is so wonderful, so good that we can barely take it in. I, I pray you just make me a vessel, Lord, that can communicate the riches of your calling and your grace upon us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we continue our series on the doctrines of grace. We, at the bridge, we stand in the Reformed tradition. We believe and teach Reformed theology. You may not even understand what I mean by that. But basically, if I were to boil it down into a, a nutshell, what it means is that we, we believe and we teach that salvation is not ultimately the result of man's free will, but it is ultimately the result of God's sovereign will. In other words, God is the great king over all things, and God is the one who saves, and God is the one who extends his gracious hand to bring us into his kingdom. Now, we have already looked at three of the doctrines of grace. The first one is the doctrine of total inability. And if you recall that message, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And we saw there that the Bible says man is dead in trespasses and sins. He's under the control of the world. He's under the, under the control of the devil. And he's under the control of his own flesh. And he's actually a child of wrath. He's under the wrath of God. As such, he's unable to please God. He's unable to come to Christ. He's unable to see the kingdom of God. He's unable to hear the words of Jesus, and he's unable to understand spiritual things. He's completely cut off from the life of God. He's in a desperate situation. That's the doctrine of total inability. The second doctrine was the doctrine of unconditional election. And we really took our time with this one. We looked at Romans 9 and Ephesians chapter 1. And to boil this doctrine down, it simply means that God, before the foundation of the world, chose certain people to be saved. He did not base that choice on something in the person, like some foreseen faith or some foreseen repentance. Or He didn't look down through the quarters of time and see who would choose him and then say, okay, well, since they're going to choose me anyway, I guess I'll choose them back. That's not how it works. He chose based on nothing within man, but simply his own sovereign good pleasure. That's the doctrine of God's total or unconditional election. The third doctrine was last Sunday, and that's the doctrine of particular atonement. And this doctrine is an interesting doctrine because there's a side of the atoning work of Christ that was for all men. Christ died for all men in a certain sense. He died to provide atonement, to provide reconciliation, to provide propitiation, to provide redemption. He died for sins. And the same sins that the elect commit are the same sins that the non-elect commit. So when he died for sin, he his death was of such infinite value that it could cover anybody in this world. But yet there's something else needed by the sinner to come into the possession of the benefits of the cross. And that is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. He must be born again. And Christ did not purchase regeneration for every person. All men have available salvation, but Christ died in order to purchase the work of the Holy Spirit that will quicken them and make them alive and that they will then come to the cross and receive its benefits. So there's a particular aspect of the cross and there is a universal aspect of the cross. That's why you find so many verses in the Bible about the cross, and some of them talk about how it's for the world, how it's for all men, how it's for everyone. But then you find other verses where it say that the cross is for the sheep, or for the church, or for his people, or for the many. You have these particular group of verses and this universal group of verses. Well, as long as you can understand that the cross was for all men, but especially for believers, especially for the elect, then all of these verses come to make sense. And you don't have to try to, you don't have to try to squeeze those verses into your own mold. You can let them say what they say, and you can accept all of them for what they say, and 
Makes sense. So there is a particular atonement, meaning Christ died to purchase regeneration and the saving work of the Spirit for His people. The fourth doctrine we're going to discuss is the one we're going to discuss this morning. It's the doctrine of invincible grace. Some people call it irresistible grace, but I like the term invincible even better, meaning that it will overcome every barrier and every opposition, and it will achieve what God wants it to achieve. It's invincible. Now, invincible grace can be described in four different ways in the New Testament. It can be described as God drawing a person, or calling a person, or quickening a person, or regenerating a person. And we're going to look at those four aspects of God's grace and salvation. Then we're going to look at some questions that arise, and then some important applications. So first of all, let's take a look at God's invincible grace as described in the Bible as Him drawing us. Him drawing us. And we come here to John chapter 6. Verses 35 to 45. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, this is an extended passage, but what I want to do is just ask a bunch of questions from the text, and I want you to find the answers right out of your Bibles. The first question is this, what does it mean to come to Christ? He talks about coming to Him all the way through this passage, but what does that mean in the mind of Jesus when He talks about that? Well, look at verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. John 6.35 is an example of parallelism. You will find this all the time when you read your Bible, especially in the Psalms and in the prophecies as well. Parallelism, meaning that there are two parallel lines within a single verse, and those parallel lines are synonymous, and they help to explain each other. There are two lines here. The first one is this. He who comes to me will not hunger. The second line, he who believes in me will never thirst. Now look at those as parallel. He who comes to me is parallel to something down here. Do you see what it is? He who believes in me. So to come to Jesus means to believe in Jesus. It means to believe savingly on Jesus. That's the answer to our first question. Number two. How many people can come to Christ on their own? Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. How many can come to Jesus? Nobody. No man. Nobody at all. Now some will come, but nobody can come on their own. Under their own will or their own steam or their own ability. It's impossible. Another question. What did the Father do to make sure some come to Christ? Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. What did the Father have to do? He had to give some people to Jesus. Remember, nobody's going to come on their own. So in order to make sure that some come, the Father had to give some people to Jesus. What do we call the doctrine when God gives people to Jesus? What is that? 
That's election. That's the doctrine we've already discussed, unconditional election. Okay, let's ask another one. How many of those that the Father has given Jesus will come to him? Verse 37 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Okay, good. (laughs) You're getting this. Here's another one. How many of those who were given to Christ are going to be lost? According to verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose how many? Nothing. But raise it up on the last day. Every single person the Father gives to the Son will be saved. Not a single one will be lost, according to Jesus' words here in verse 39. What must the Father do so that some people come to Christ, according to verse 44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me does what? Draws him. That's what the Father has got to do. He has got to draw this person or they will never come to Jesus Christ. And what does it mean for the Father to draw a person? Now we want to take some time on this because it's going to take some time to teach you and to open up the text so you understand what this drawing is all about. We use the word draw in many ways. Like... um, Serenity is good at drawing. She sits down with colored pens and she sketches things. But we're not talking about that kind of draw. That's, Jesus wasn't talking about drawing pictures. <laughs> when he says, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, it's, it's like when a horse draws a carriage, it's pulling that carriage, or a man lowers a bucket and draws water up to the top by pulling on the rope and pulling the water up. That's the meaning of draw here. It means to bring something to you. He actually opens up the understanding of draw in verse 45. The very next verse, he tells us what it means for the Father to draw someone. He says there, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So, to be drawn means that a person is taught by God, not just by the preacher, not just by witness by another person. God himself teaches that person and God opens up their understanding so that they hear from him and learn directly from the Father. Now, God may use the preacher in that process. He may use a friend in that process. But God himself is speaking to that person through somebody else. It might even be the words of Scripture. But God uses the words of Scripture and he teaches that person so that they understand inwardly in the heart and they begin to responding in faith to him. Okay, so that's that's in the context. That's what draw means. But now let's ask ourselves a bigger question. How is that word draw used in the rest of our New Testament? It comes up seven or eight times in the New Testament. I'm going to just point you to, to the verses. We don't have time to go and look at each one, but I will describe what's happening. Um, John chapter 18, verse 10, speaks about Peter drawing his sword. He takes the sword out of the scabbard. John 21 Verse 6 and 11 speaks about the disciples hauling 153 large fish in a net onto the shore. The word there, haul, is the word for drag or draw. One time it's used as dragging it onto the shore, and other times it's used of hauling it onto the shore. Um, Acts 16, verse 19, Paul and Silas were in Philippi, and they were drug before the magistrates. They dragged them to get them before the police. In Acts 21 and verse 30, Paul is in the temple with four other men that they're performing some vow, and the Jews find Paul in there, and they, they, they think he has no place there, and so they go and they dragged Paul out of the temple, and this angry mob starts to lynch him. But there the word is drag. It's, it's used as dragged in Acts 21.30, Acts 16.19, and also James chapter 2 verse 6, where it says, isn't it the rich that drag the poor into court? So three times this word is translated drag. One time it's translated haul. And another two times it's translated draw. Okay, so to boil all this down, what this word means 
is to compel by irresistible superiority. In every single case, there is resistance made. I mean, that sword is heavy. The fish are heavy. Paul and Silas are heavy. They resist being dragged where they want to go. But the resistance is never successful in any of the cases. In every case, the resistance is overcome. The sword is drawn out of the scabbard. The fish get to shore. Paul's hauled out of the temple. Paul and Silas are brought before the magistrates, and the poor are brought into court. In every case, what was intended is accomplished. Yes, there is resistance, but the resistance is overcome. So that's what, scripturally, the word means to draw someone. Yes, there's going to be resistance, but God's going to overcome the resistance, and he's going to bring the sinner into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, here's another question. How many of those people who are drawn are going to actually be saved? Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Every person that God draws is going to be raised up on the last day. Well, what does it mean to be raised up on the last day? Look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So for God to raise somebody up on the last day means that he grants them eternal life, according to verse 40. So John chapter 6, verses 35 to 45, presents this ironclad argument, not only about election, but about invincible grace. God gives a certain portion of mankind to the Son. The Son comes and He saves each one of those people. The Holy Spirit comes and He applies the salvation that Christ wrought out to those people. None of them are lost. Every single one of them are raised up to eternal life on the final day. So, that's our first question. Invincible grace is described as God drawing a person. If you were a Christian this morning, that's what happened to you. God drew you. He overcame your resistance. He made Christ so lovely to you that nothing else mattered anymore, except a, a team of horses could not stop you from getting to Christ. You had to have him. And you. And today, you still have to have him because he's your life. He's your all in all. He's the supreme person in all the universe. Number two, invincible grace is described as God calling us. Not only does he draw us, he calls us. Now, There are two ways in the New Testament in which God calls. There is, I'm going to call it a gospel call, and there is something called an effectual call. Now, in Matthew 22, 14, Jesus gives a parable of the wedding feast that a king gave for his son. You probably recall this parable. And um, when everything was ready, he sent his servants out to call those who had been invited. Do you remember what they did? They all refused to come. They all began making excuses. They all resisted the call. And so what did he do? He sent them out to compel them to come in. Now, at the very end of that parable in verse 14, Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. Wait a minute. Many are called, few are chosen. There's a difference between this group and this group, isn't there? There's many over here, there's few over here. That means that this call that Jesus is talking about does not actually save people because few are chosen, many are called. What he was talking about there is the gospel invitation. Whenever the gospel is preached or whenever you, whenever you witness to your friend, a call is going out. It's a gospel call. Now, who is issuing this call? The person who's speaking is issuing the call. Man is issuing the call. There's another kind of call in the Bible. And we call this call the effectual. Do you know what that word effectual? We don't use it much. It means effective. It means it brings about its intended purpose. God, over here, the gospel call, man gives that call. Every time we preach... Every time we invite sinners to Christ, we're issuing a gospel call. Man issues it. But this other call over here, God issues it. 
God makes sure that this call is so powerful that the person answers the call. You see, the gospel call can only be, it can only reach the ears of the person, but the effectual call comes and gets to the heart. That's where they differ. One is an outward call, and one is an inward call. I want to read to you what one of my famous, or my favorite authors, uh, Thomas Watson, he was a Puritan, lived in the 1600s. He wrote about these two different calls. And I want to read to you what he said. There is an inward call when God, with the offer of grace, works grace. By this call, the heart is renewed. And the will is effectually drawn to embrace Christ. The outward call brings men to a profession of Christ, but the inward call to a possession of Christ. God puts forth infinite power in calling home a sinner to himself. He not only puts forth his voice, but his arm. The apostle speaks of the exceeding greatness of his power, which he exercises towards them that believe. Ephesians 1.19 God rides forth conquering in the chariot of his gospel. He conquers the pride of the heart and makes the will, which stood out as a fort royal, to yield and stoop to his grace. He makes the stony heart bleed. Oh, it is a mighty call. The effectual call is mighty and powerful. God puts forth a divine energy, nay, a kind of omnipotence. It is such a powerful call that the will of man has no power effectually to resist it. Now, that was Thomas Watson, writing in the 1600s. That's representative of what the Puritans believed during this era, and it's representative of what I believe the Bible teaches. Now, why do I believe that? Well, there are texts of Scripture that lead me inescapably to this conclusion. Yes, there is a call that is not answered. It's resisted. In fact, the gospel call will be resisted. Do you know why? The first the first doctrine we studied, total inability. We're totally depraved. We don't want God. We would rather have sin. We would rather have do what self wants to do. We resist God when he starts coming and he offers these overtures of mercy. In fact, the gospel call must be resisted until it is overcome by this effectual call. I want you to look with me over at Romans 8. And let's see how how the Apostle Paul uses this word call. We're going to look at Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. And I want you to be looking for the word call or calling here. We're going to start off with one of the most famous verses, probably next to John 3.16. This is the most famous verse in the Bible. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Is that for every person in the world? Come on, you Bible scholars. No, it's not, is it? He tells us who it is. It's to those who love God. Well, who are the people that love God? He tells us in the very next phrase, to those who are called according to to his purpose. God has a purpose and he calls people according to that purpose and they are the ones that this promise in chapter 8, verse 28 is made to. These are believers. Now let's keep reading. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren and these whom he predestined, he also called. There's our word. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now look very carefully at verse 30. What happens to every single person who God calls, according to verse 30? What happens? They're justified and they are glorified. What does it mean to be justified? Can you be justified and go to hell? No, you cannot. Justified means God declares you righteous in his sight. He covers you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. To be justified is another word for talking about being saved, receiving eternal life. So every person that God calls, he justifies. And every person that he justifies, he glorifies. That means he takes him to heaven. And he changes this body and glorifies their body. So, 
Is this first talking about the gospel call that can be resisted, or is it talking about the effectual call that cannot be resisted? It has to be the effectual call, right? Now, if this verse said that some of those people that God called are not justified, then it might be the gospel call. But according to verse 30, every person that he calls is also justified. And notice also the order of verse 30. You have predestined, called, justified, and glorified. There's a certain order taking place, right? Predestined, that happened in eternity past. Glorified, that happens in eternity future. There's these two other things going on in the space of time. Calling and justification. But which one comes first? Calling comes before justification in God's order. When is a person justified according to the Bible? Romans 5.1, if you, if you don't know the answer. <laughs> Therefore, having been justified by faith. A man is justified at the point of faith. But here, calling comes before justification. I'm going to make the case that calling precedes and causes faith. And that may not make too much sense. I, I think it will before we're done today. I think it will. Let's look at some more texts. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 2, Paul says, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Okay, there's our word. These people are saints by calling. And every person who is saved is a saint. They're a holy one in the sight of God. Now, go down to verse 9. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Many people look at this idea of God drawing or God calling as simply God extending an invitation and wooing them and inviting them and beckoning them to come, but they can resist it and they can say no to that call but notice verse 9, these people, God called them into something. He called them into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Can you be a lost person and be called into a, a fellowship with the Son of God? Is that possible? Can you be unregenerate and have this saving relationship with Christ? No, of course you can't, right? It doesn't make any sense at all. These people he's describing in verse 9 are saints, they, they have come into fellowship, a saving relationship to Jesus Christ. And the way they came into that relationship is how? They were called. That's how it happened. God called them into that. Now, keep going in chapter 1 down to verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Now, Paul's describing... When he went around preaching in the first century, there were Jews and Gentiles. He would preach Jesus Christ, and when he preached to the Jews, they wanted these signs. And Jesus Christ, this idea of a crucified Messiah, was a stumbling block to them. They didn't like it. They didn't believe in it. When he preached to Gentiles, they're always searching for wisdom. And when he preached Christ to them, Jesus Christ crucified sounded like foolishness to them. So it sounds like people are resisting the preaching of the gospel, right? The gospel invitations going out, the gospel call. People, ah, oh, that's foolishness. Ah, uh, that's a stumbling block. And so they're rejecting the invitation. But notice verse 24. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The gospel goes out most rejected. But there's another group. How are they identified? It's right there for you, verse 24. The called. There's that other smaller group within the larger group. These are the called. And instead of Jesus being foolishness or a stumbling block, he's the power and wisdom of God. In other words, the lights have come on and they see him for who he is. He, they see Christ in his glory. They're not, they're not blind to the glory of Christ anymore. They see him. He's the wisdom of God. He's the power of God. But notice it's not everybody. It's that group, the called. This is the effectual call. Let's look at another one. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 
Verse 9. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now here another, we're, we're, we're told about this calling by which we're saved. Notice at the very beginning, it couples the idea of saving and calling together. God who has saved us and called us. In my mind, that means these two groups are the same. God saved us. Well, how did he do it? He called us. What kind of a calling was it? A holy calling. Uh, what was it not according to? Our works. What was that holy calling according to? God's own purpose and God's own grace. And when did God grant it? From all eternity. There's election. God purposed to grant this grace in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But then election itself doesn't save anybody. It only marks out the people that are going to be saved. Those same people need to be called in order to come into the possession of salvation. So they're drawn, they're called. Effectually, powerfully, invincibly, irresistibly. Let's look at another one. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 9. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Now the calling that is being referred to here actually did something for these people. Did you notice that? They, they lived in darkness before. This calling brought them out of darkness and it brought them into God's marvelous light. It's not just an invitation that they can accept or refuse. It's a call so powerful that it brings them out of the kingdom of darkness where they're subjects of Satan and it brings them into the kingdom of light where Jesus Christ is king. It, it, it affects a kingdom transfer. It's a saving call. It's, I, I, I use this illustration sometimes. When my boys were little and they were messing around and I'm trying to watch TV, I say, boys, knock it off. I, I'm, I'm trying to watch something. And they keep messing around and horsing around. I say, boys, I, you told, I just told you, knock it off. And they keep horsing around. I say, boys, knock it off. Now that got their attention. That's the call of God. It's the call that comes so loud, so powerful, so strong that it turns you to Christ and brings you to Him to be saved. It doesn't let you go on in your sin anymore. It decides, I'm going to have you, I'm going to have you now. Now, if you're a Christian, God issued you that call. Isn't that a wonderful thing to thank Him for? Okay, praise the Lord. Let me read to you what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. This is an old, old confession. It was written in 1646. And it's kind of long, so try to stay tuned in. And it's written in old-fashioned words, too. (laughs) All those whom God hath predestinated unto life, and those only... He is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive therein, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. Now that's a mouthful, but they're basically saying exactly what I've just been trying to teach you from the Bible. I believe that's a very biblical statement. 
that the Westminster Confession divines came up with. So, God's grace, His invincible grace is seen in Him drawing us, it's seen in Him calling us, and thirdly, it's seen in Him quickening us. There's another word we don't use much, but the word quicken means to make alive. God's invincible grace is seen in Him making us alive. Remember, total inability says that we were spiritually dead, right? If we remain spiritually dead, we will be lost forever. We must be made alive if we're ever to see Christ in glory and be saved. That has to happen. Well, thankfully, that does happen. Let's go over to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So if we close our Bibles right now with that, what do you come up with? Hopelessness. Right. <laughs> Kelly goes, <laughs> we're all dead. We're all damned. We're all going to hell. If, if you end at verse 3. But notice he doesn't end at verse 3. He says, but God. Not but you. They didn't do it. God did something. But God. Why? Because he was rich in mercy. And it was because of his great love. God is love. And because of that great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. That's what we're talking about when we talk about invincible grace. This is what happened to every child of God. They were once dead in transgressions, and God, when they were dead, not half alive, or in a coma or something, they were still dead, and God brought them to life. That's salvation right there. And without that happening, nobody is saved. I don't care how many sinners' prayers they pray, or how many times they walk the aisle, or how many times they say they love Jesus. Unless they've been brought from death to life, they're still lost. This must happen for any person to get to heaven. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Regeneration is not an optional thing. This is something that must take place. Now, what do we mean when we talk about him making us alive together with Christ? Notice it's being made alive together with Christ. That's a very important phrase. Christ is the living one. We're the dead ones. You take someone dead and join him to Jesus, what happens to the dead one? He comes alive. <laughs> the life that's in Jesus starts surging through him. It, take that, that vine. The vine is alive, and you cut off a little branch, and you graft it into that vine. Well, that dead branch starts coming alive and starts bearing fruit, doesn't it? That's what happens in the life of a person when they're saved. God picks you up out of your dead condition and he grafts you into Jesus so that his life starts pouring into you. Without this, there is no conversion. With this, you are saved. This means everything. <laughs> this is everything right here. Okay, never mistake false conversion. I, I, I walked an aisle, I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade, I prayed the sinner's prayer. So what? None of that means anything. This is what means something. you got to have the life of Christ. Now, Jesus talked about this in John chapter 5. Let me read his words there. It's John 5, verses 24 and 25. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, right now, present tense, eternal life. And he doesn't come into judgment, but he has passed out of death into life. Now, he says that happens now, not after we die. The one who believes right now has eternal life, and he has already passed out of death into life. That's regeneration. That's the quickening of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're looking for when we're preaching and when we're witnessing. 
We're not trying to get people to make a physical action. We're trying to see if the Holy Spirit bring life into that person. And once we see the life, they've got it. They've got the real thing. Without the life, they don't have anything yet. Eternal life is not just life that goes on forever. It's the life that's in Jesus. Do you remember 1 John 5 says, Eternal life is in the Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Eternal life is in Jesus Christ. And you need to be attached, united to, plugged into Jesus. Once you've made that connection with Christ, you have his life. So it's not just life that goes on forever. It does do that. But it's not just quantitative life. It's qualitative life. It's a different kind of life. It's not the kind of life you're born with. We're born with biological life. This is a whole different kind. It's the God kind of life that we don't have unless we're attached to God. See? So, invincible grace is seen in drawing, calling, and quickening. And fourthly, it's seen in regenerating us. Now, when God draws you, that's exactly the same thing as Him regenerating you. When God calls you, that's exactly the same thing as Him regenerating you. When God quickens you, that's exactly the same thing as Him regenerating you. Okay, all of those things are talking about the same thing. Regeneration. Now, regenerate. Generate means come alive. Re means do it again. Meaning once we were alive in Adam before he fell, then we died in the fall. We have to be re-brought to life. Regenerated. Born again. again. That's the easy term for it. Born again. (laughs) There you go. Let's take a look at Ezekiel chapter 36, because this describes regeneration. Ezekiel chapter 36, look at verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Cause you is a very strong word. This isn't just a gospel offer. (laughs) This is a calling that produces obedience to Christ. You see it there in the text? I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now what happens at regeneration according to these verses? The Spirit of God comes in. God takes something out too, doesn't He? He takes out the old heart of stone and He puts something in, in its place, a heart of flesh. And then He sends the Holy Spirit into that heart of flesh, which that Holy Spirit causes us to walk in God's ordinances and obey Jesus Christ, submitting to Him as Lord. The Spirit of God working does that. You see that? So there is a sort of like a spiritual heart transplant that happens when you're born again, which means the affections of your heart change. If they've never changed, you've never been born again. If you've been born again, you have a new heart. This heart, well, let's just put it this way. The new heart loves what it once hated, and it hates what it once loved. Now, this old, this old heart of mine used to love sin, used to love doing its own thing. It was selfish. It was all about me, myself and I. The new heart loves Jesus. The new heart loves righteousness. The new heart loves being with you in fellowship. The new heart loves the Bible and it loves prayer and it loves worship. Uh, these are all <laughs> things that come with the new heart that God gives us. Now, I used to hate certain things. I used to hate Going to church, I used to, I tried to read the Bible once and gave up after the first page. Honest, that's the honest truth. I used to hate trying to read the Bible, going to church. Now I love those things. How come? God gave me a new heart. And if you've been born again, He's given you a new heart. Isn't that awesome? Cause, cause we couldn't do that. Can, can you imagine just decide, okay, from now, from this day on, I'm going to have a new heart. You ever tried doing that? It ain't going to work. <laughs> you don't have the power. There's only one person in the entire universe that has the power to take out your old heart and give you a brand new one, and that's God. But thank God, that's the blessing of this new covenant. 
So God's invincible grace is him drawing us, calling us, quickening us, and regenerating us. Now, there's two things more we want to do in this message. We want to ask some important questions and give some important applications. First, there's there's four questions we need to ask. Number one, can God's grace be resisted? This is something that we talk about irresistible grace, and people say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Bible talks about resisting God's grace. Acts 7.51 is one of those places. This is uh, Stephen when he was brought before the Sanhedrin, and he's basically preaching to the Sanhedrin before they stone him to death. He says in verse 51, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Sounds like they're resisting the grace of God, right? I would have to agree. They certainly are resisting God's grace. So what do we mean by irresistible grace or irresistible calling? Of course, we don't mean that people don't resist God because everybody, every totally depraved person does resist God. We simply mean that when God's time has come, he puts forth so much power that he overcomes their resistance. They resist right up until the time that God calls them. And when he calls them with his effectual call, they stop resisting and they give in. They say, uncle, <laughs> you, you know, it's like the police officer bringing you into court. He's got you by the hand. You're not getting away. You're handcuffed. He's bringing you in. Paul talked about in Philippians chapter three, that God apprehended him, turned him around and brought him. Remember the parables Jesus told about the lost sheep? He says the shepherd leaves the 99, he goes to the one who's lost, and he doesn't say, come on, little sheep, follow me back to the fold. He picks him up, puts him on his shoulders, and brings him back and plops him back in the fold. That's effectual calling. See what I mean? (laughs) That's what God has to do for us because of our total inability, the very first doctrine we talked about. So yes, God's grace can be resisted until God issues the effectual call, and then he overcomes the resistance. Because with the effectual call, he changes your nature. He changes the heart so that you don't want to resist anymore. Of course, there is a part of you that still hankers after sin, and you have to subdue that, and that's sanctification. But there is this this change, this almighty change that goes on where I really love Jesus, and I really want to please him, and I'd want to follow him. Yes, I do still make mistakes and sin and fall into this and that, but I repent. He cleanses me up and I keep going because I really do love the Lord. The heart's, the direction of the heart has been changed. Okay. Another question for you. Do we cooperate with God in the new birth? How much of this is God's work and how much of it is mine? Is this a 50 50 proposition? Like God does half of it and I do half and we sort of meet in the middle and we get the job done together. Or is it even a 99% God and a 1% me? He does almost everything, but unless I nod my head in his direction and say, okay, he can't do it. Let's think about that. The Bible refers to this work as being made alive and being born again. Let's just talk about being made alive in the physical realm, resurrection. How much did Lazarus have to cooperate with God in order for him to come back alive? He couldn't cooperate, could he? He was unable to cooperate because he was dead. (laughs) He didn't have any ability to cooperate. Or when you were born, how much of it was your mom and dad giving birth to you and how much of it was you? None of us, right? We were unconscious of the whole thing. We, We just... Ended up in a new world one day, (laughs) but it wasn't our will. It was our parents' will. So, no, according to the scripture, we don't cooperate. We're passive. We do become very active the moment we are born into this new world, the spiritual world. We start, just like a baby starts crying and he starts breathing and squealing and drinking and all. There's all kinds of activity once he's born, but until then, he's just kind of waiting for this delivery. Once we are brought into God's kingdom, there's lots of spiritual activity that starts happening, like crying out to God and prayer. I remember when I was first born again, started praying for the first time in my life. I never prayed before then, but there was an instinctive thing that caused me to pray and a desire to seek out other Christians. I I could tell you a long story about getting into the Mooney cult for a weekend. (laughs) I won't do it, but... (laughs) 
that would take us 15 minutes down the road. But I remember I was in the bus stop with my banjo and it had a big Jesus sticker on it. And I'd been saved about maybe two weeks or three weeks or something like that. And I, another guy said, hey, are you a Christian? And I said, yes, are you? <laughs> and he said, yes, why don't you come over to my house and we'll have dinner? And turns out he was a Mooney, part, part of the, the Unification Church is a cult. But just because he said he was a Christian, I was so happy to find somebody else that I would go anywhere. Just to, I was totally gullible three weeks into my conversion. <laughs> but God, anyway, God got me out of that and I'm safe and here today. But <laughs> so yeah, we, we can't cooperate with God in our conversion if we're spiritually dead. We're like a baby being born. We're passive in that process. Uh, we come to life as soon as God births us and makes us alive. Well, here's a third question. What comes first, regeneration or faith? You may have never thought of this question. You probably haven't. I never thought about it until 1991 when it was posed to me. Brian, what comes first, regeneration or faith? And that really had me stumped for a while. Are you born again and then believe? Or do you believe and then get born again? <laughs> Let's say I took out a pistol and I shot a hole through my front door. Did the hole cause the bullet to come to it? Or did the bullet cause the hole to appear? Right? We all know the answer. The bullet caused the hole. Regeneration's the bullet. Faith is the hole. Or if I go outside and, and I, I um, try to start my car and click. That's all there is. Nothing happens. I turn on the lights, no lights. Turn on the radio, no radio. Do I say, if I could just get my lights to come on, I'm sure that dead battery would be recharged. <laughs> That's the opposite, isn't it? I've got to recharge the battery, regenerate the battery, and then the lights will work. God has to regenerate your soul so that the lights of faith and repentance and good works start to happen from your life. Your soul's dead. He's got to regenerate that soul. He's got to give life to it. So, of course, what comes first is God's work of regeneration, and then faith and repentance will flow. Now, I'm not saying that God regenerates you, and then a week later, or a month later, or a year later, you believe. No, they happen simultaneously. But one causes the other. Right? The bullet and the hole appear at the same time, but the bullet causes the hole. The, the live battery causes the lights to come on. Is there anything in Scripture that would lead us to that conclusion? Well, let's take a look at John chapter 1, verse 12. John 1, 12. It says, There is as many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now that's all very simple and straightforward, right? If we receive him, we are given the right to become children of God, uh, and receiving him is the same as believing in his name. But then we got to have to read the next verse. Who were, this is past tense, not who are being, who were, Born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So these people that receive him and believe on his name, what's true about them? They were born of God. That's why they believe in him. That's why they receive him. You see, see the connection from, from the text? And he's very, very careful to show you that this had nothing to do with you. Your birth was not of your flesh. It wasn't the will of man. It wasn't of blood. This birth was of God. And that's why you believe, and that's how I've received Jesus Christ. I'll show you one more. It's interesting to me how many of these come out of John or First John. Uh, John loved the doctrine of God's grace, I think. But First John chapter 5, verse 1 is another text that helps us. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, I'm going to have to share a little bit about these, these verbs here, because it doesn't come out in English, but it does in the Greek. The first verb is present tense, so it's present ongoing. 
whoever is presently and ongoingly believing that Jesus is the Christ, the second verb, is born, is in the perfect tense. And in the perfect tense in Greek, it's a past completed action with ongoing results. That's what the perfect tense means. Whoever right now is believing that Jesus is the Christ has been and continues to be born of God. That's what the Greek verbs mean. So if you believe now, that means you have been born of God, which would tell us that regeneration precedes faith and causes faith, brings about faith. Well, this last question, where do faith and repentance come from in the Bible? When I was growing up, I was always told they just come from your will. You just make a decision to believe, and that's how it happens. You just make a decision to repent, and that's how it happens. But in the Bible, we don't see it that way. Let's talk about um, faith, first of all. In Acts 18.27, it speaks about those who believed through grace. Now, why did they put that little phrase in there? If they... if. Faith is just our contribution to our conversion. There was no need to talk about them believing through grace. But evidently, the grace of God is necessary for a person to believe. Or Philippians 1.29 says, For Christ's sake, to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to suffer, but also to believe in Him. To you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, to believe? That's what he says. It's granted. I mean, it's given to you. What about repentance? Acts 5.31. Peter is preaching to the the Sanhedrin that have arrested him. In Acts 5.31, he says, Jesus is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God grants repentance according to this verse. Or Luke eleven eighteen. after they had gone to the Gentiles, look at how Luke reports what had happened. Luke eleven eighteen. when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Interesting language, isn't it? God granted them repentance that leads to life. But the, the clearest one to me is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. Here, Paul is talking about the Lord's bondservant and how he can't be quarrelsome, but he has to be kind and able to teach and patient. And then in verse 25, he says, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Very, very clear. The lost person is held captive by the devil to do his will. He needs to be, he needs escape from that. He needs to come to his senses. And what God does is some, to some people, he grants repentance. Now notice the language here. If perhaps God may grant it. In other words, this is not a done deal for every person in the world. God may or may not grant repentance. That's up to him. It's his choice. He's the sovereign one. He gets to make that call. We, we don't get to make it. God Almighty makes the call. So faith and repentance, according to the Bible, are gifts of the grace of God. They're granted to people. Now, let's look at some important applications. Number one, we should continually call sinners to Christ. You say, Brian, if, if this all this stuff is true about effectual call and invincible grace, why even preach to anybody? God's going to call them all by himself. He doesn't need you. Folks, that's what's called hyper-Calvinism. I don't know if you've ever heard that word or not, but that's hyper-Calvinism. No, God has not only predestined the end, He's predestined the means to get to the end. And one of those means is the preaching of the gospel. God issues the effectual call to those people who hear the gospel call. And if you want some people to get the effectual call, you better give the gospel call to as many people as you can. Because God's going to take some of them like a magnet and draw the iron filings to Himself. So preach the gospel to everybody you can. 
Look for opportunities. Pray for opportunities. Make opportunities. Go out on the street and preach. Go door to door and preach. Hold up your sign for prayer here. <laughs> go, go to the convalescent hospital. Keep doing what you're doing and don't stop. And let's fire it up. Let's not get um, apathetic about the reason God has left us on this planet after he saved us. So I just want to encourage you. Continually call sinners to Christ. Tirelessly relentlessly. And folks, you know what that also means? We don't need to sugarcoat the message to get people into heaven. We don't need to change it so that it's a little bit easier to believe. If God issues an effectual call, he's going to take the truth, not some lie. He's going to take the truth and he's going to convert with the truth. Wouldn't you, would you agree with that? So we don't need to candy coat anything. We don't need to cut out words like repentance or sin or judgment or surrender, or the lordship of Christ, or hell. These are all biblical terms that we need to explain and instruct people with. They need to understand those things. And it's not going to shoo any of the elect away. In fact, God's going to use his truth to bring in the elect into his kingdom. So I love that about the effectual call. I I am I am a delivery boy, and so are you. Or you might be a delivery girl. What's your task when you deliver a message? Let's say you go to somebody's house, knock on the door, and your message is, I'm sorry, but your husband was killed in active duty. And so you say, well, I don't want to say that. That's going to hurt their feelings. Your husband has been injured, but he'll be okay. Don't worry. You know, Is that being a faithful delivery person? You have to take the message, and you've got to tell him what the message is exactly the way it was given to you. So you take this Bible and you read this Bible and you deliver the message of the gospel just the way you read it, without cutting corners, without shaving things off and making a little bit more palatable, a little more appealing. We just preach the true and living gospel. And God takes that and God saves with that. Another application. We should be looking for evidence of invincible grace to authenticate salvation. What I mean by that is that you don't figure out if somebody's been saved by asking them, well, did you ever pray the sinner's prayer? Or did you ever stand up or raise your hand in an evangelistic campaign? Did you ever sign a card saying that you wanted to choose Christ? No. That, that doesn't authenticate salvation. What authenticates salvation is we be, should be looking for evidence of this invincible grace in our life or somebody else's life. Remember how we talked about that, that this is quickening, it's being made alive. Look for evidence that someone has received new life. Has their heart changed? Has their affections changed? Do they desire God now? Do they enjoy being with the people of God? Do, do, are, are they repentant over sin? The, the, you know, the evidence is easy to find if you're looking for it. So that's what we should be looking for. Not some physical action, but the spiritual activities that happen when someone has been converted. Number three, we should never despair of anyone's salvation. If the effectual call is true, nobody is beyond God's reach. Think about Saul of Tarsus. If anybody would have been thought to be beyond God's reach, it would be that guy. Because he's trying to stamp out Christianity, right? He's going from town to town, locking them up in chains, dragging them off to Jerusalem, breathing out threats and slaughter and murder against the church. I mean, this guy was like a crazy lunatic trying to stamp out all of Christ's followers. And yet Jesus effectually called Saul of Tarsus. He didn't just say, hey, Saul, would you like to believe in me? (laughs) He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to prick against the goads. And from that moment, Saul became a follower of Jesus Christ. Look at what... He even writes this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. He says, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. The reason why he got me is because he wanted to use me as an example. Hey, if God could save me, he can save anybody. (laughs) I'm the example here of his perfect patience. So are there people in your life that you're starting to just kind of give up hope on? I would say don't give up hope. 
as long as there's breath, as long as there's brain activity in that person's mind, don't give up hope on them. Pray for them. Pray for them. God can effectually call them. They're not beyond God's reach. God can get them. So let's renew our commitment to pray for lost people. And then number four, we should praise God for his invincible grace in our lives. I mean, that's like a no-brainer, right? (laughs) Do you see evidence that God's brought you from death to life? Is there any evidence you can point to? Then they used to say, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you that when I was dead, you made me alive together with Christ. Lord, why'd you do it? Was it because I was just such a sweet person? No, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. It's because of his mercy and his grace, not because of you. (laughs) We don't have ourselves to thank for this grace, but we do have a sovereign Savior to thank. He did it. That's why you're alive in Christ today. He did it. It says in 1 Corinthians 1, the last verse of that chapter, it is by His doing that you are in Christ Jesus. Paul's very emphatic about that. He wants God to receive the credit and the glory because God is the one that receives, should receive that credit and glory. So this is a matter for worship, of praise, of thanksgiving. We ought never tire of just thanking God for what He's done in our lives because it wasn't me, it was him. Let's pray. Father, we do want to thank you as a body of your people today. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts, Lord, that you stepped in and made the difference. Lord, that you made us alive because you loved us. You loved us from everlasting. And you determined that you were going to pour out your mercy upon us Lord, you called us out of the kingdom of darkness into your marvelous light. You called us into fellowship with your Son. Lord, you called us so that we were justified. And we have that beautiful, beautiful promise that you're also going to glorify us. And So, Lord, we are happy. We're blessed. We're happy in you today, knowing that you've done all this for us. We give you the glory and honor forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.